Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. This morning we have the opportunity to conclude the study of the book of Hebrews, and uh, it has been a great book, hasn't it? And uh, so if you would, you might take your Bibles and turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to finish this great letter, somewhat of a difficult letter at points, as you already know. Uh, it is a letter that is rich in history, and we struggle at points trying to understand all the history. Of course, it's been deep in its theology, and you have had the privilege of wading through some fairly significant theological passages. It has been challenging to our faith. At points, it's been somewhat uh, stern and sobering, and even maybe at places scary. Uh, if you think back on Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 10, these great warning passages that, that tell us not to take this great treasure that we have in Christ lightly. But uh, I think most of all, this letter is a tremendous exhortation. In fact, if you'll notice in chapter 13, as he concludes, when he has this kind of P.S. at the end in verse 22, he says, But I urge you, brethren, suffer with or bear with this word of exhortation. It is an exhortation. It's a plea. And the constant plea of the book of Hebrews from start to finish up spiritually. To not let spoil... Hello. You guys take care of me back there now. To not let spoil the spiritual wealth that we possess in Christ. Uh, to press on, in fact, to a greater moral character and certainly a greater spiritual ambition and adventure, and to realize that the spiritual life is, in fact, the greatest life that there is. And that's what this book has been telling us. Uh, you know, as difficult at points as it is, there's a subliminal message that's in the book of Hebrews. It's buried in there, and it flashes every so often in every chapter. And that message is, grow up, grow up, grow up. Don't grow old without growing up. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. If you believe this stuff, then grow up and believe it radically. And of course, these Hebrews were struggling with that. They faced a culture that was hostile to the Christian faith. They had suffered a great deal. The people around them were aggressively opposed to anyone living out the Christian life practically. And that's what they struggled with. From time to time, you and I will struggle with the same. There was the constant temptation, as we've seen, for these particular believers to compromise and blend back into the culture for the sake of safety and for the sake of anonymity. Yet in seeking to appear to be the same as everyone else and wanting to compromise in order to escape confrontation and uh, embarrassment and maybe at points even persecution, these believers were in fact suppressing the very adventure that they were meant to have. They were suppressing the power that Jesus Christ wanted to give them by taking them in these large doses of compromise. You know, as I thought in uh, how to summarize this letter before we look at these uh, verses that are before us here this morning, I thought, you know, if it was the first century and we were here, a person who might fit well in the first century would be Garth Brooks. The reason I say this is because Garth Brooks has a great little tune that I think would have been a chorus 
that these Hebrews would have sung in their worship services, maybe with a little country flair. But here's the way it would go. It would say, some would like to buck the system, but the deck is stacked against them. They're a little scared to go out on the limb. Selah. <laughs> That's the Jewish flavor that I wanted to add to it. <laughs> but if you're going to make a difference, if you're going to leave your mark, you can't follow like a bunch of sheep. You've got to follow your own heart. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Sometimes you've got to go against the grain. Did you know that's the book of Hebrews? To go against the grain? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. You've got to go against the grain. That's what this book is all about. That is the plea to these believers to grow up. Because to grow up in Christ, you must go away from the herd and against the grain and live differently in a world that won't take that kindly. You know, when we come to this last chapter, chapter 13, it is a chapter in which we have gotten intensely practical. Bill Wellen started us last week, and what is in this chapter is a call, but not a general call, not a theoretical call, and I hope that if you've learned something by going through this book, Christianity was never meant to be just within these walls and just meant to be high thoughts and high ideals. Christianity was meant to be something very intensely practical. And in this chapter, there is a call, and it's a call of Jesus Christ to specific lifestyle applications. And that's what's here this morning. Something very real, something very tangible, something very salty, because that's how Christians are to live. Something for those who do live that, something very powerful. Now, it's starting with verse 7, and that's where we'll pick up, where Bill left us off last week. We have what I call six additional touch points of the call of Jesus Christ. And the first on your outline is a call to stability. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Remember those who led you and who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Now, what I would like to do uh, is for you to look at verse 7. At the very end of verse 7, when he finishes, you just might add the word because. Because these two verses are connected. What he's saying is, is that you need to think about those who led you in other times because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, even forever. And the reason I say because here is because there are some people who come in, they're young in the faith, maybe you've just become a Christian, and at points a young struggling Christian can be very intimidated by someone who is much more mature in the faith, someone who exudes a sense of stability in their personal walk, maybe in their business, perhaps in their family. That can be real intimidating when you're just struggling at the beginning just to get over the first hump in your Christian life. You're not consistent, and you know it, and you're not faithful, and you don't know how to be a husband, or you don't know how to be a wife, much less a parent, and you're failing in your finances, and you're struggling in your business, and when you get around someone who, who seems to have it all together, well, that can be extremely intimidating. And if you're not careful, you can come to the conclusion of saying, I could never be like that. I could never be that consistent. 
I could never be that faithful. I could never be that wise. I could never make those kind of sacrifices. What verses 7 and 8 are saying is never say never. Sure, at times, someone who is of a strong Christian character, they can be intimidating. That's for sure. But you need to understand that what you see in them is not some unique talent that's only been given to them. It's been given to you. That's why verse 8 is there. What you see in them is Christ in them. He's the resource for those virtues, those consistencies. And the same Christ, that's verse 8, that abides in them that you marveled about in them, that same Christ abides in you. So be encouraged, not intimidated. You have what they have. It may take time, may take effort, but you have what they have. So press on to grow in Christ. Now verse 7 is a call to remember these leaders that uh, you personally knew. Now that's the key phrase, that you personally knew. Now we looked in chapter 11 and it gave us all these faithful people, Abraham, Moses, uh, people of those kind of statures that we could look into the Old Testament and draw strength from. But verse 7 is not about those people because those are people we don't know. Those are people who didn't personally touch our life. Here the call in verse 7 is, is to remember those who led you. People who've been around you. People you personally know. It's a call to think back on them. It's urging these believers to look ahead to those godly men and women who have finished the Christian life or who are getting to the place where they're nearing the finish line and then ask a very specific question about them. Was their life of faith worth it? Did it really pay off for them? Did it make a difference? What was the outcome of that way of life? You know, Americans have often been chided for a short-term perspective. Uh, and uh, we marvel at some countries who have what they call a very long-range plan, long-range perspective. This is what this passage is inviting us to do. It's inviting us not to look at those running in the lanes beside us in this race, but it's asking us to get a much longer-range perspective and look down at those who are just now getting close to the finish line or who have finished it and ask a very important question about life about faith, about Jesus Christ. And that is, was it worth it for them? Did it pay off? You know, oftentimes, as I've mentioned, we look at those running beside us. And, and I, I know, and there's some great wisdom, especially if you're a single or young married or teenager here, there's great wisdom in this verse, remember those who led you. Because it is asking you as you run, and as you want to look side to side whether you're ahead, that's competition. Do I have this or have that? But you know, life will teach you something that I'm only now beginning to learn, but those who are older than me have learned it even more, and that is many of the people running beside us will be disqualified before the race is over. Many who are running beside us who look so good to us and to whom we are so tempted to emulate many of those people will come across the finish line heartbroken, weak, anemic, failures. 
But in a moment of time, they can look so strong like Ben Johnson in the last Olympics. The call of the Christian life is not to look around. It's to look ahead. It's to look at the finish line and see those who have finished and who have finished well and find out how they did it and what they did and how hard they believe. And then as our verse exhorts us to do, then imitate and imitate and keep on imitating because you're imitating the winners, not just finishers. Recently, uh, one of our elders, Dan Woods, retired in our church. Uh, many of you know Dan. He's really the only gray head we have on our elder board. But he finished working as an executive with Timex after 38 years. You know, retirement is one of those things we dream about until it comes, isn't it? We think it's going to kind of be the end-all, be-all. It's really not. And in these last few months, I've watched Dan handle retirement. So have many of the other elders. I've seen him struggle with what retirement really does mean and how to apply his faith to it. I've seen him, and I had the joy to participate in his retirement party with a packed house of Timex employees. And to see Dan Woods stand in front of all those people and with incredible clarity tell them that all that they have benefited from him is because of what Jesus Christ has done in him, whether they knew it or not. I saw Dan do what so many are not able to do, and that is, as much as his accomplishments have been, and quite frankly, I was impressed with Dan's accomplishments because it took a long time to get them all out. To see him humble, not relying on those accomplishments, not saying, I'm finished, but going from that standpoint to being a man who's still as flexible as when he was young, and now rearranging his life in order to continue to serve the same Jesus Christ that he served all through his employment. That was incredibly impressive. All with an attitude of a humble gentleman. And so in these last few months, I've been taking all that in, and then I've been comparing it to a lot of people in my life who have also retired. And you know what I've said? I want to be like Dan Woods. That's what I've said. That's how I want to finish. See, that's what wisdom is all about. Not looking at those who are beside you, but looking at those ahead of you. And the call of Jesus Christ, I want to guarantee you this, it is a call to stability. It will not fail you. You will not regret it. It's a call to stability by looking to finishers who have let the same Jesus Christ who now lives in you live in them and then noting the outcome of their way of life. That's a wise person who has that kind of call and receives it. Secondly, it's a call to simplicity. Look at verse 9. It says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Now that's kind of a reference back to all the rituals and ceremonies of Judaism. But it applies to all the rituals and ceremonies of any religion. Have you ever wondered how things that can start out so simple can become in such a short time so complex? Some of you probably have done like Sheridan and I, we've started projects on our house and it was just going to be a simple project and it turned to a whole total renovation of the place. Or maybe you've entered into a relationship and it was just going to be a simple date 
boy meets girl, and yet a few months later, you're all entangled. Kind of a gut-wrenching entanglement with all kinds of things now you're trying to figure out. And what started out so simple is now such a complex relationship. It's the same way in the Christian life. Christian life was meant to be very simple, but in a very short period of time, it can be so complicated. Suddenly we find ourselves having to, all these to-do lists and all these demands and all this religious ritual and activity surrounding it. And in a while, you can wonder, where is God in all of that? And that's what he's talking about here. The Jewish nation out of which these people had come had become drenched with ceremony and ritual and liturgies, not to mention special days to observe, or as our verse mentions here in verse 9, certain foods that you could eat or not eat. All these rituals and somehow to get closer to God. But you know what it did? It didn't get them closer to God. As a matter of fact, it took them further and further away from God. Look at the last line in verse 9. It says they were occupied with these things, but if you'll notice, it had, and here's the key words, no benefit from, for them. The person of God, the one that all these things started out to enhance, is the very person that got lost in all these rituals and ceremonies. It's kind of like a marriage. Sometimes couples can come into the church and they spend months planning this elaborate ceremony. And of course, we've got to pray and we've got to mention God and what God's Word says. But that's the only time it's ever mentioned. <laughs> Everything else is around where we're going to go and what we're going to do, and God is totally left out, and the ceremony becomes an empty event. As if it's kind of a good luck charm to God to have that. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, these words, he says, For I am afraid, lest the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your mind should be led astray from the purity and the simplicity of of devotion to Christ. You know the call of Jesus Christ is very simple. It's a relationship with God. And all it requires is for a person to simply hear, listen, and obey God day by day and enjoy the fruit and the power that comes out of that very simple response in the relationship. That's all it is. That's it at the core. You want to know the purpose statement of the church? It's one word. Jesus. That's it. But often, we begin to build around those kinds, that, that very simple relationship, all these elaborate ceremonies and rituals, and liturgies and observances and high days and holy days. And after a while, God disappears. You know, as I've thought about that and I've watched people go through all those motions, I've come to the conclusion that though as excellent as many rituals are, they can become a selfish way for a religious person to pay God off so then he can go out and live the way he wants to. I can go through Lent because somehow Lent can give me some appeasement with God and then I can live like hell the rest of the time. I've paid God off. But that misses the whole relationship. The relationship is a day-by-day -day relationship with Him. It's as simple as that. The call of Jesus Christ is a call to simplicity. Thirdly, the call of Jesus Christ is a call to separation. Look at verses 10 through 14. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle or the temple have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest 
as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence let us go to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Now do you notice a key phrase in those verses? It's the phrase, yes, outside the camp. It's there in verses 11, 12, and 13. What does he mean, outside the camp? Well, that was a euphemism in those days for outside the city walls. Outside the city was to be outside the camp. Outside the city was to be outside Jerusalem. It was a first century phrase to imply reproach and rejection and separation. Uh, it's referenced again and again in the Old Testament. You know, when they went and dumped their trash, they dumped it outside the camp. It's where they dumped all that stuff, the heap of refuge out there. When they wanted to execute a criminal, they would never do it within the holy walls of the holy city. They would take a criminal and execute him outside the camp or the gates. When Jesus Christ was crucified, He was crucified outside the camp. And that's what our reference is here in these verses. To be outside the camp mean, meant to be outside the step of the city, outside the culture of the city, of the taste of the city. It was a place of repulsiveness. It was a place of ugliness. It was a place of wrong. And here is the call of Jesus Christ on our life. It's a call to go outside the camp with Him. It's much more than a call to be just a Christian. To go outside the camp, as this letter has told us again and again, is to become not just a Christian, but a Christ follower. See, you can be a Christian inside the camp, but you can't be a Christ follower there. You've got to go outside the city walls. And to go out to Him, as this passage, though shrouded with a Jewish flavor, is to be out of step with this world, as Jesus said, to live in the world but not of it. And I'm going to tell you this, the people of this world will not like your nonconformity. Because outside the camp is to be a nonconformist to a degree. Not to be weird, but to be different. And as you become different, a Christ follower, it will shake up some people. It will also make some people mad as they look at your beliefs and lifestyles because it will be at points as offensive to them as the foul smell of trash was outside the city gates. Now, none of us like what I just said. Now, I want you to know this. I don't like what I just said. <laughs> but to be a Christ follower... You must go outside the camp. That is taught over and over again in Scripture. For instance, turn with me over to John chapter 17 as Jesus, the night before His execution, is praying for you and me. And I want you to notice what He says in the midst of this tremendous prayer for us. John 17. Look at verse 15. Or excuse me, let's look at verse 14. He says, I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
sanctify them in truth. The word sanctify means to be separate. Separate them in truth. Thy word is truth. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's just before our book of Hebrews. 2 Timothy. And here's a promise most of us would not like to claim. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 says, And indeed, now anytime you see that, the guy's raising his voice a little bit. He's giving an accent. And indeed, point of emphasis, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. None of us like to look different. None of us like to be in danger. None of us like to stand out in a culture. But the call of Jesus Christ is a call to separation. Not isolation from the world, not being taken out of the world, but to be in the world, but to be different from the world. And in that differentness, there will be a measure of pain. So why do we live outside the camp? Well, let me give two reasons. The first would be this. Outside the camp is the only place that you can make a difference in this life. This nation, our community of Little Rock, or Central Arkansas, will not be transformed by blending into it. There is no way. As Tom Anderson said in his publication, Straight Talk, history is made not by majorities, but by dedicated minorities. This is the season for the church. This is a time to be different, to make a difference, to take the heat. You can't avoid it if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. You know, this last couple of weeks, our church has taken a little heat. And uh, for some in the community, they didn't like some of the steps we took. For others, there's been a sense of uh, great excitement and bonding. I got a great letter from uh, the head priest at Christ the King Catholic. I opened the letter this week, and uh, here's how it began. It says, Dear Robert, three cheers and praise the Lord. But you know, for others, it wasn't nearly as popular. And uh, you know, there comes a place where you've got to say, for me to live outside the camp, I've got to make some decisions. And I want you to know for me personally, and I'm going to share this personally with you, there is a decision I had to make before this whole event took place. It's going to be the same question that's going to be asked of you at some point in your life. There's a fear in here. You know, some of you all think I'm fearless. I'm not. There is, there is a sense of looking stupid. And somewhere along the line, before all of this started, and other places along the line, I have to ask a haunting question within me. And here's what that question is. Am I willing to look like a fool? You see, until that question's answered, <laughs> you, you can never make a difference. It will always be the thing that right before you step out, you'll have your feet knocked out from under you. I'm not saying I want to go out and look like a fool. But I'm saying... When you step out in differentness, the only way you can do so powerfully is to answer that question on the front end, 
before your God in the privacy of your heart, am I willing to look like a fool? If you don't, great. But if you do, is that okay? That's a question I have to answer. That's the question in this decade you're going to have to answer as well. Secondly, outside the camp is the only place of real faith. If you'll notice in verse 14, he says, For we do not have a lasting city here. We're seeking the city which is to come. You see, inside the camp or inside the city of Jerusalem, it was very easy to be religious and yet to be void of any really living faith. It was a religious city, but they were void of real faith. Just like in Little Rock, it's so easy to be a churchgoer and yet be void of any living faith, any real faith to follow Christ and to be different, any real faith to give away what most people would keep for themselves, to sacrifice any kind of popularity for what's right, for what's truthful, to, be an un to take an unpopular stand because you truly have an eternal vision. You see, that's real faith. Anything else is religion. It's inside the city walls. Real faith is betting against the known, the seen, the now. For the unseen, the future, and the unknown. That's why he says, we have not a city here. But we want you to know, Christ's followers are betting it all on the city that is to come. What Jesus in other places refers to as the kingdom of God. You know, I've often thought of the big surprise for some who toy with their religion. What it will be like when one day they find out that what they toyed with was the reality of life. What they fooled around and kind of gave a passive acknowledgement to, in fact, was the most active force in the universe. I heard a story of a, of a young teenager who was having a date on Valentine's. And on this date in Valentine's, he, he went to a candy store to get a gift for his date. And uh, when he was there, as he talked to the owner, the owner said, well, what kind of gift would you like? And uh, he said, well, that all depends on what I think I can get her to give me. He said, now, if she holds my hand, maybe a card is all I want. If she'll give me a kiss, well, maybe a small box of candy. But if I can get her to really kiss me passionately, well, then a large box of candy. And then he kind of said with a mischievous wink and a smile, I'll take the big box of candy. And off he went. Well, that evening he arrived at the young lady's home and uh, they were going to sit down and have dinner before they went on a date with the family. And he sat down and the dad asked him to pray. And he started praying. And he went on and on. And he kept praying. And it got to be to the point of ridiculousness. And he kept praying. And later, after it was all over, this uh, young lady, as they went on their dates, dates, said to him, she said, you know, I didn't know you were so religious. And uh, he turned and he said, I didn't know your dad owned the candy store. <laughs> now that was a surprise. <laughs> And I want you to know, it's going to be a big surprise for those who just casually use the name of Jesus Christ to promote their own particular opinions. 
or attend church and rituals because somehow it's just the culturally acceptable thing to do. And then to discover one day that what they were just kind of playing with is in fact the reality. That's what this verse is telling us. We are called to be separate. We're called to be separate because, uh, or we're to, called to be separate with a real faith that believes in a real kingdom that is to come. Fourthly, the call of Jesus Christ is a call to sacrifice. In verses 15 and 16 it says, Through Him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. If you remember, King David says, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And here are three sacrifices that the writer chooses that we're to give if we're to receive the call of Jesus Christ. The first is the sacrifice of praise. The second is the sacrifice of doing good. The third, the sacrifice of sharing. Those are real, salty, tangible points of reference for a Christ follower. The sacrifice of praise comes from the heart that's humble. Because to praise God actively requires an effort of you to think around you all the things that you have that you don't deserve. But if you really think on those things, praise will come from your lips. The sacrifice of doing good requires a head that's thinking creatively. Some of you, if you would just use the mind that you've been given to think about things that you could do for others, you could create all kinds of scenarios that would bless God's people and this community. The sacrifice of sharing requires hands that are willing to release what I have to use on myself for the help of others. And the reason these are called sacrifices is because the direction of all three of these is away from self. But that is so healthy. It will lower your blood pressure more than oat bran will. It is so healthy to let the things that you have go away from self that's what we're talking about here. You know, they call an object that gives away its light a star. They call an object that takes its light a black hole. And the calling here is for you to be a star. But it will require the receiving of the call of Jesus Christ to sacrifice your life. Fifthly, the call of Jesus Christ is a call to support it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. We're leaders, Paul says, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this. Now, what you see in these two verses are two ways that you can support spiritual leaders. Two ways that you can build them up. And this is important because it's so often in a spiritual leader, it, you can assume they don't need anything. But they do need something. And they need something from you. The first thing they need is your obedience. This word obey, by the way, is the Greek word patho. It's the word from which we get persuade. And it's an interesting word because it's not calling for a church and its membership to give mindless obedience to those who lead. It is not allowing or putting into the hands of the men who lead this incredible dictatorial authority. 
None of that is being implied in the word patho. But patho literally means to be confident in, to be persuaded by, to be sure of. That's the literal translation of patho. So in our verse here we could say, be persuaded by your leaders. Be sure of your leaders. Be confident in your leaders. That's the call of verse 17. In other words, make up your mind whether these men who are leading are trustworthy. Be sure that they are men that you can give your allegiance to. And then I think there's an implication here. And that implication is this. If you cannot, and you are not sure of them, and you are not persuaded by them, then find someone else. I had a young man call me from another city this week, just distraught about the particular way his leadership was going in his church. And we talked, and I had asked him earlier to go talk with the leadership about this, and he did. And he finds that they're fractured in their theology, and he's lost all his confidence. In that situation, leave. Don't stay. And I would say the same for anyone here. If, if, if you have to suffer under a leadership, then leave it. Find someone you want to emulate, you want to follow, you desire to be like. That's a scary thing for me to say. But if you don't, then find someone who will call you to higher ground, an honorable, dignified way of Christian living. That's what's being asked here. You know, if you'll notice, that's what brings harmony to a church when all are gathered together in this kind of same direction. It brings a tremendous harmony and unity in the church. If people are within a church unsure and uh, the leadership is incompetent, that is going to create tremendous turmoil and pain. That's why it says, do this so it will make their leadership a joy, not a grief. You know what the word grief means here? It means groan. Maybe even a better word is sigh or moan. It's where a guy is trying to lead and he's got people there who don't believe in him. And when he shuts his office door, he just goes, <sighs> because his life is people business. Helping people to become spiritually ambitious and yet they don't believe in him. And it's a pain. The best way you can help any church or any group that you're in within a church that has spiritual leadership is to make up your mind whether you believe in them or not. That's what you can do for them. Then there's a second thing. It says you can pray for them. In fact, Paul, uh, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews here says to pray for us. This is a leader asking for prayer. And that's so important. It may seem like a little thing, but it's a real spiritual war if you believe this. <laughs> And if there's a real spiritual war going on, the one who is a must target for the enemy is the leader. Prayer is a way that you can protect your leadership. It really is. I cannot tell you how encouraged I am, how built up I am, just from the sense of encouragement, when I get a little card and I open it up and someone has taken the time to tell me that they are praying for me. I do not consider that an idle thought or a passing fancy. I take that as someone who's providing lifelines for me to survive under the pressures that come on this particular position of leadership. It is important. You can do something for me. You can do something for your community leader. 
You can do something for your youth leader. They're not impenetrable. They are vulnerable to the enemy. So pray for them because they desire, like I desire, like this writer desired, to live honorably in all things. And boy, do we need that in Christian leadership today. I mean, the community, when they think of a Christian pastor, I mean, there's a, the, the mouth turns down and you just begin to shake a little bit because the reputation is so low at this present hour. Pray. That's something you can do. And it's part of the call of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, this writer of Hebrews closes with a benediction, which is also a call. I've called it the call to salute. He says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. I like this word great, by the way. It's a good word for young people today. It's the word megalos. It's where we get the word mega. Who brought up from the dead the mega shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, May He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now why do I call this a call to salute? Why is it on your outline you've got two boxes, one saying yes and the other one saying not? <laughs> well, there's a reason there. Because this benediction, and here's what I want you to hear, this benediction is the writer's conviction not necessarily the readers, about life. You have to answer this benediction. As a matter of fact, what I would ask you to do right now if you've got a Bible, is you might just do this. Put a question mark next to Amen. And I'll show you why we should do that. And maybe then a blank where you can write in a response. Yes or not. See, here's the way I think he's really saying it. He's saying, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen? That's how this epistle ends. Amen? He knows it's true. He knows that the real glory of this life is not this afternoon with the Super Bowl. That will fade. He knows the glory, the real glory of this life is in fact the allegiance one gives to Jesus Christ believing that His will and His Word is the only thing that will abide forever. Amen? Okay, there's where we are. And you have to fill it in yourself with your amen. For some of you, you can do that this morning. But my challenge as I close here today is for others of you, it would be extremely important for you to be alone and to take some time and to think about what this letter, this powerful Christian letter is saying. And then come to the end of this benediction and ask yourself, do I really believe the contents of this letter? Do I believe it's that important to grow up? Do I believe that real life is boldly living out the life of Jesus Christ without compromise? Do I really believe that? And when you come to the end and there's that amen with a question mark, then you can put in your yes or your not.
but be honest with yourself. Be real. Don't put this stuff aside without giving your, yourself the chance to decide, do I believe in the finish line as the Christian faith has described it? If you don't, then give it up. But if you do, then let's do it radically. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this book that has been so inspiring and challenging and scary. But Lord, it does bring us to a very high and lofty place. As we described it in earlier messages, a great canyon, and we stand on the lip of that canyon, and the invitation of Jesus Christ is jump. And we can shrink back and hide in liturgy, in ceremony, in church attendance, but this letter invites us to jump. I pray for every man and woman here today not to shrink back, not to look for anonymity and safety. There will be a day where there will be no place of safety but to move towards our culture and towards our community and into our community equipped for every good work to make a difference because we believe at the finish line. The one to whom glory and glory forever abides will be found. I pray that we would run into His loving arms at the end with great joy and satisfaction. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.